Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. You're very welcome to another episode of the Scaling Your Business podcast. This is episode 59, if I'm correct. And for this episode, we're joined by Luke Ryan Cullen, the founder of Tune Release. Luke, you're very welcome to the show. Thanks, Ryan. Lovely to, to meet you. <laughs> Delighted to have you. A bit closer to home this episode. Last episode I recorded, we went over to Edinburgh and then down to Cardiff. So we're going back to Blanchardstown, which is very close to me. I'm in Rototh. So talk to me about what it was like growing up out there. Any favorite standout memories? Yeah, so essentially in my house, um, I was the oldest child, a lonely sibling for a long time. Um, then uh, I had my sister, Eva Rose, um, so she was special needs, um, lived for about six years, um, and she was only meant to live for six months. So we were quite delighted that um, she, she uh, fought ahead, you know. Um, yeah. But I think going through that when you're so young, when you're like 12, gives you a real different perspective on life compared to so many others. So I was always known as the, the guy with the old head on his shoulders. Um, Perhaps because when you're that age, you're just caring for the other person. That's all you kind of know. Um, yeah, you'd grow up pretty fast. Yeah, you do. So she was a Jack and Jill child, um, and Jack and Jill did tremendous work, just in terms of giving support and giving us, you know, a bit of downtime as a family to be able to go on a holiday or two down the countryside. But most times we we bring Eva with us. Um, yeah. And then in terms of schooling. Um, very multicultural area. There's just people from all walks of life and um, people learn English for the first time. Um, and resources wise, it's, it's not great. So you have to do a lot of kind of self-led um, learning. Um, there's teachers again from all different kind of tiers areas. Of walks of life, yeah, yeah. yeah. So some would be phenomenal. Like you'd have one teacher that was, you get straight A's under the other teacher. You'd be given notes that wouldn't even get you a pass in the actual exam. So um, I think that's what spurred me on then to um, ask my mom, could she get out the bank loan and uh, put me into the Institute for a year, um, which was kind of on the, fa- the back of not getting along with a certain teacher because um, at the time I was elected to the, be the president of the student union. So I think when you're that age, you're kind of there going, oh, I want what's best for all my peers. Yeah. And so you're kind of trying to champion them and give them a voice. but. Um, you learn very early on that you don't shoot yourself in the foot and uh, <laughs> you know speak out against um, your elders so um, that was kind of a rocky start in terms of schooling but I was always a good student um, I was an avid do, reader. Do you mind me asking how, how did it make you feel when you stood up against the teacher and stood up for what you believed in? Before it very good um, like oh we're getting our stuff together then during it um, quite angry um, we had a lot of um, pushback from the, the likes of the principals and stuff. Um, and it, I think there's a defense mechanism in, in sectors where you can't speak out, where they'll kind of group up on, on the one student and they'll be like, no, this is the way it is, or they'll turn the problem on you. And mm. anyone who knows me knows I, I wasn't actually the problem child. Like I, I wouldn't speak up during class or anything about it. It'd always be in a, a private capacity. Um, but my, um, I suppose uh, the way I, dealt with it was I wrote a lot of poetry at the time and a bit cheesy but uh, it's great when you can kind of figuratively um, (laughs) go after someone absolutely Um, 
you know, uh, like Gates was getting one back at someone. But <laughs> um, that's what kind of led me into doing English in college. Um, okay. So they were my two top subjects, English and history in, in the Leaving Cert. Um, not very employable subjects. And by no means, uh, when you go to college, is English a very heavy hands-on course in terms of contact hours. So um, at about four hours a week towards the end of my degree um, in college and at the time I was managing the orchestra and I was the live music officer as well for the entertainment society. Um, I also ran to be ENS officer, but uh, that was my first experience of uh, politics. Um, and politics is, it, it's a fun game. Yeah. <laughs> Not one I think any entrepreneur worth their salt wants to go near uh, when they're older, because it's very kind of, the social hierarchy you can have game. a lot of people going up against you yeah you've yeah. you've you you've done a lot in your early years you mentioned the institute funny i i didn't go to the institute but i did go through like midterms to get extra study in yeah and they'd always give a form at the end saying can you recommend the best teacher in your school and i'd always recommend the second best teacher because i didn't want to lose the best yeah. teacher in our school um it shows before, you they have the processes like it's incredible yeah it is it is incredible um and uh, a, a great place to go and learn because each one of the teachers are brilliant in their specific area rather than, you know, in, in school, uh, I went out to school and told college and the first couple of years, I had a French teacher that I didn't get along with and I really hated French as a result. And then this guy came in uh, just about six months before the junior started and I was failing French. He came in and completely changed my mindset on French, fell in love with the thing, I may have even got a B in my junior cert in French. And as a result, I actually ended up choosing to do Erasmus and lived in France for six months, all because of the teacher. So big impact on who your teacher is in any specific subject with the Institute, you get that. But with that, you need to have money to pay for that as well. But before we move on to all these other things, you had a childhood where you said you, uh, Jack and Jill featured in it because of your sister. I don't know what your parents were at that, but who do you think had the biggest impact on you while you were growing up? So um, I suppose my mom was brilliant at kind of keeping me on the straight and narrow. Uh, I wasn't out on the street too much. Um, it, it was a rough enough area. So when I did get out, there, there was often a bit of rough and tumble in terms of fights in the primary school I went to. I was in junior infants and for senior infants, I was taken out, moved to a different school. Like uh, just there's a lot of aggro, I suppose, in the area. Um, there's a document done called In the K on the area. Yeah. That, that is that. I know. So. <laughs> I know. Yeah. And I saw that show come out. I was like, where's the K? And then I was like, oh, I'm in it. Great. I'm um, on the border, so don't feel too bad. I'm kind of yeah. in it as well. <laughs> There's a lot going on in fairness. For TY work experience, I did um, a placement uh, with the guards. It was an oh, incredible nice. program. Like they had the drug squad come in. They'd have um, wow. They'd have you out on the boats and everything. Like they'd show you every facet of the job. Um, that's really cool early stage recruitment drive I, i'd say but yeah <laughs> much needed say as well um but in terms of that so my mom set me up in terms of following the footsteps of my cousins going to violin lessons learning music from an early age then my dad in terms of martial arts so he was big into his taekwondo kickboxing at the time and um, so he trained me up since the age of four and that and had me swimming so anything sports and activity wise that was my dad anything kind of do your study and read your books and go to music with my mom. So I had a nice balance, but they were split up. So um, I think I'm very lucky in that my dad stayed in my life rather than what sometimes mm. often happens. So yeah. I'd always see him three, four times a week. Um, whereas I know a lot of other people wouldn't be as lucky in that regard. Yeah. 
Um, my mom's a nurse, my dad's a taxi man. Uh, but there's a kind of great story in terms of my dad, in terms of business. So um, he started as a butcher, that was his trade. Um, bit entrepreneurial in that he set up his own butcher shop. Um, but what nice. happened then was the mad cow disease came out. So flattened that business. Mm. Um, next, he became a taxi man. They deregulated the industry then. And then he bought a house and the property crash happened. So wow. <laughs> in terms of resilience, maybe that's where I get it from and the stubbornness. Um, I've seen him go through it all. Um, so just using his stories, I suppose, as a sounding board. And he's a great guy for just chatting about ideas. Like anytime I had a business idea, I'd, I'd be chatting for hours with him on the way up to Kildare, where he lived previously, or Cavan, where he lives now. So, yeah. Yeah, you, it sounds like you've got a great set of parents uh, and they raised you well. Yeah. A couple of things I noticed about you through your research, and you've touched on it a couple of times, grade eight violin, but also piano. You've played Vicar Street with the likes of Damien Dempsey. I believe you're a Game of Thrones fan, and I know you've been to places like Spain and Poland, but what's one thing you're into or curious about uh, that not a lot of people know about you? I am, I suppose I'm a bit of a gamer as well. Um, I used to play a lot of like Medieval 2 Total War and funnily it would give me a kind of an edge in terms of history because you know the lay of the land, you know all about the Crusades, the different kings and queens, um, which is kind of interesting. I'd love to see esports or, or gaming in general used as an educational tool a bit mm. more. Uh, I think there's a lot to be explored in that regard and I know a couple of startups are kind of dipping their toe in it, um, but I'd love to see a bit more work done in it. Um, it's just more engaging. Yeah, um, it's, it's a growing, it's a growing, uh, I don't know if you want to call it a sport, but it's certainly growing. There's a lot of people making some good money from it. Oh, huge. Um, Dota 2 blew up and I actually went over to Hamburg to, to see one of the tournaments. And I think the prize fund was well over 300k, something like that. Wow. Um, but I know for the international, the prize pool is well over 30 million. Yeah. Um, it's just something that those that are in it are like cult followers, but those that aren't in it have no clue there's this kind of esports uh, industry going on in the background crazy crazy uh sticking on music uh, i'm kind of curious where your love came from because i can see anyone who's not watching this there's three four guitars behind you you've touched on violin grade eight is the highest grade you can go to in music and you've done that for two if not three different instruments you also were the president at the trinity orchestra where did you get the love for, for music so I think most kids kind of, they start young, which is good, but I think you are limited in terms of what you can learn unless you're a prodigy. I was no prodigy. Um, like I've seen four-year-olds that are coming up through the ranks um, and just blow me away. And I'm just there going, look, you play the lead role. I'll, I'll support you. <laughs> They're like 10 years younger than me. And I don't mind, like, it's great to see. Um, but the love for it. So started at four, joined a couple of orchestras in DIT, uh, the Conservatory of Music, Chatham Row. Um, from that, got into the Dublin Youth Orchestra. I was very much following the footsteps of my cousin, uh, Rachel. Um, she's about five to eight years older than me and was always in orchestras doing violin. And um, from the DYO, then got into the National Youth Orchestra. And that's kind of where the love started. So I was, I was very introverted, so it was hard to make friends. But once you're kind of in a summer camp or a Christmas camp and you're, you're forced to make friends, you're there like for the week yeah. or two. Uh, you come out of your shell and you, you learn so much. Um, so that's kind of where I started to make friends in it. And then in college, the best go-to extracurricular is going to be music and gigs and festivals. And Trinity Orchestra were doing most of the festivals, so it was free tickets and great crack. Um, 
and then kind of the business stuff happened when I I decided let's go for um live music officer and um president so I was managing um, a lot of the bookings we were doing um the Dropbox summer party we were doing like a Jurassic Park themed event um we were doing a gig in Dundrum shopping center and these are gigs that the orchestra had never done before but financially the orchestra wasn't doing great when I took over so I really wanted to push the boat out in terms of how many gigs can we do and can we be so that yeah. we have a bit of money to actually have fun for the rest of the year um so we were just doing way more gigs than ever before and I think we'd lost Electric Picnic as a gig the previous year so uh, I had to wine and dine a couple of the bookers and get coffees and stuff with them to get that over the line um and the thing is Ireland's a small place like once you get to know people and you have a couple of coffees the door is open in so yeah. many different areas so that opened us up for the corporates as well so um finally we had wow. a bit of cash in the bank and we were able to enjoy it now I don't think we enjoyed it too much my year we were just working hard but I think the following years are able to reap the rewards hopefully that's that, that's phenomenal you're a you're you're a wise man uh, and a smart man at that uh, and I want to get into the business side of things I'll, 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 this is the kind of the leeway and I see that you've been a participant in and if you're seeing my eyes going I'm reading the three things because there's more than one you've been a participant in the HubSpot Growth Accelerator Program the Enterprise Ireland New Frontiers Development Program and the Google Adopt a Startup Program two questions two part question would you recommend others put themselves forward for programs like this if they're in a similar position that you were in and what were some of the kind of key takeaway or lessons learned having been through those programs so I think anyone who's young, go for it. Um, the, the thing with any accelerator is it just viewed as this kind of crash course for learning. Um, so anything that was free or gave funding to the, the venture I was trying to do was, I, I just was like, please let me do it. Um, so I started with the Blackstone Launchpad Sprints, uh, randomly came across it in the library in Trinity. Um, did that, it was just a lunchtime program for four to six weeks um, and 300 quid cash prize at the end. And then I kind of learned all the fundamentals, which was brilliant. That kind of segued into the Test Dragon's Den, which is a brilliant competition. And we managed to win that and get a bit of funding, but what a student doesn't have a clue what to do with any funding. Mm. So the first thing you think of is, oh, legals, I need my TNCs so that I don't get sued. Or you don't, like as a startup, launch without your TNCs. You learn that retrospectively, yeah. um, but it's better off getting revenue in the door. And then as problems arise, put out the fires, unless you're venture backed or something like that. Um, so we also did the Launchbox program in Trinity. That was grand in terms of it was like a summer internship. Uh, they brought in entrepreneurs that had founded successful businesses, like say Food Cloud, for example. And you're able to hear these great stories and uh, I suppose avoid some mistakes. You're still going to make loads, um, mm. but that, that's brilliant. And then in terms of the company ones, so like if you're deficit in marketing, go for the HubSpot one. You're just going to be familiarized with their kind of academy of tools, uh, which is brilliant. Uh, the CRM systems and all that. Then with the Google one, um, the Google one is just brilliant to have Google in terms of brand name and awareness. It's great for PR. Um, the program itself gives you three Google mentors. So like if you need any paid acquisition stuff, go for it. If you're doing app growth, why not? Um, anything like that, Google's amazing at even YouTube. Um, I think people forget YouTube is a Google company. So the, they're going to be brilliant at doing the, the marketing on that front as well. Um, we did the Startup Boost uh, pre-accelerator as well with Gene Murphy, who's just a brilliant guy in the ecosystem. Like, And he put us in touch with Patrick Monaghan, who's one of the mentors on the program. So that kind of was my first experience of professional product dev using Kanban methodologies, making sure everyone's 
really keeping things lean and prioritized. Um, so each different course did give me some learnings. The only thing I'd be wary of is uh, there's a lot of red tape sometimes with the, the state run ones. Um, there's a lot of, in terms of like, oh, write your 20, 30 page business plan. I think they're, they're getting better and they're like, oh, let's do a 10 or a 15 page one. But like, if you're in the States, it's a 10 page, it's a 10 slide pitch deck. They, do, they don't want to know about a business plan. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, so I think if you can pick one that there's not too much red tape, um, like revenue is always going to be better than any program you get on. Um, but if you're starting off, you're young, you need to learn a lot, go for as many programs as you can. I think some people are, are saying, oh, there's a lot of startups, you know, program hopping. Um, but I mean, if they're young, they have to, like they don't have one or two previous successful startups or failures behind them. Yeah. Um, and they're better off learning from a program or an alumni rather than uh, putting 20 grand into something and then not working out and having to pay back the loan, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. It sounds like you've, you've built up a good network as well. One of the names you mentioned from Startup Boost, uh, he's incredibly networked across Dublin. So to have those people uh, to tap into is phenomenal. You're now the founder of Tune Release. One thing that caught my attention on a previous podcast you said was that artists can pay anywhere from 20 to 60% in what was it, artist fees. And kind of you're there to disrupt that. Uh, can you tell anyone who isn't familiar with Tune Release? I was shocked that it was 20 to 60. 60% is ridiculous because then you have to pay tax and everything on top of that as well, I'm assuming. So what's left for the individual? Can you tell people? what tune release is and what you're hoping to do. I, I view you as kind of that middleman between like, like the set of ears for the artists. Yeah. So uh, tune release started first as a plod, which was a Airbnb days bookings platform. Um, I was like, well, if they can do that for the, the rental property market, why not for booking corporate musicians, festivals, anything like that? Um, because there's no standardization, there's no transparency and uh, payments are off in the brown envelope at the end of the gig. Um, so, if you want to be the other thing as well is tax compliance all this stuff the, the business end of things is very difficult for and um, people who are just day in day out creatives they don't want to know sometimes you know mm. uh, but they still have to make a living so after covid hit the bookings platform obviously wasn't going to be a hit um so we had to pivot into music pure and this is also on the back of just speaking to musicians they wanted to get their brand out there um now you can see there's bookings there and there's pure there that's two different team members that a musician ideally would have on their team. Those people have to get a cut of revenue. Um, so if you're building out a fully fledged artist team, either you sign a 360 deal with a label if you're very early and you haven't proven yourself, or you're going to get a mismatch motley bunch of different professionals that you either pay um, on a service-based period or a retainer, or you're given a percentage of what, what you're making. Um, so bookings, I think the, the industry standard has always been about 20% um pure has usually been two to four grand for a really experienced pure agency to do something with you uh, and that could only last four to six weeks um so as an artist like it's it, it there's not much money for the artist at all never mind to be pumping into all these service providers mm. um so if we can build a platform which we're incorporating a plot into generally so now we'll have bookings and promotion done via software where the musician can see what's coming in um we're moving towards a more SaaS-based model. Um, so like a, a teamwork or a Glowfox, we're, we're essentially being the operation system for a musician, um, making life really simple and having things just a few clicks away. Um, so what worked really well was we had a gigs feed where artists would look for support acts to, to send an inquiry and book them, or 
with PR, we just list the likes of RTE, Spin1038, anything like that, and you can pitch directly to them. And they're happy because they're getting it in a professional format with all the files they need and all the links. So that's a dream for them instead of a, a random DM on Facebook or Instagram, you know? Um, and yeah, that it's been working and we've been getting a lot of interviews and coverage for artists, but I think the next step for us is really once COVID is a bit over, start unlocking revenue for them. So that's going to be synced, licensing, uh, bookings. Uh, eventually, if they want to sign, they can they can get a, an upfront fee from the label that's signing them, you know, um, well, in advance, essentially. So, yeah. Yeah, what you're doing is brilliant. Brilliant, Luke. Um, focusing still on the role as founder, is there a uh, belief that you about your role as a founder that you passionately disagree with? Um, that's a great question. That is a, a really good question. <laughs> I think founders have to be jack of all trades, um, not necessarily master of anything. Um, so like in terms of where I fell down was, oh, I'm a non-technical founder, I can't build. Um, I very much disagree with that. Um, you can build a no-code MVP even with Airtable automation, you know, small little things, even Zapier, it does make your life a bit quicker. Um, mm. You just have to give the guise of automation. And then if you're having significant revenue and you have a model that works, there is no harm then raising around and saying, right, I just need 20 to 40K to, to build this platform. You can outsource it, but I've seen a lot of people fall down in terms of they haven't done the revenue first. Um, but I don't agree with founders raising a small round, especially if they're young and inexperienced and pumping 20 to 40K into a product that may or may not work. Mm. Um, there, I believe you need to have something in-house. Um, but yeah, um, I hope that answers the question. <laughs> yeah, no, it does. You, you answered it well. Brand awareness. I mentioned a couple of minutes ago that I kind of view you as that middleman um, how do you build brand awareness? So for us, the accelerators helped in terms of establishing a network and, and using their logos on the site. Um, next step then for us was PR. Some of the accelerators help with that. Um, otherwise, you can hire agencies like Beach Up PR or 150 Bond. Um, mm -hmm. They're both incredibly good at what they do. The thing is, as a startup, PR is very expensive. So I think your best bet is try and do it yourself first and then outsource later. Um, once you've got the, the few news articles, then it's it's all about social proofing with your, your social media. So for us, we're quite B2C. Um, so we have to play Twitter, Instagram, um, and then which are your different audiences on each different platform. So for us, LinkedIn is all about getting talent and investors. It's not about generating revenue, but Instagram is for generating revenue and Twitter is for media relations. So you have to be aware of where you're building it and, and what you're doing. I think, for us as well, you, you can get interns that are very good at what they do um, and you're able to teach them the, the ropes, um, pay them a few bob, but not be paying thousands upon thousands for professionals to do because you, you don't have enough revenue to, to justify that. Um, as meet a, everyone, yeah. You, yeah, need yeah. To, you need to meet everyone, have a coffee with everyone. I agree, I agree, especially in Ireland. As a non-technical founder, um, you've said in a previous podcast, if you were to give advice to your 10-year-old self, it would be to learn to code. I know you've done courses from Udemy on you know programming and things like that, but I'm curious to know, why did you pick that one specific thing, learn to code? 
I think so from the, the courses and stuff that I've been doing, um, I've managed to get a flair for marketing and sales. Uh, I'm able mm-hmm. to build relationships and I'm able to, to market it the way I want to. The next step is to, to live up to the expectations I've set as a sales and marketing person. So you need a good product. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you can do both, I think you're dynamite. Um, but in saying that, a lot of people believe one person can't do everything and that's totally fair. Um, but I think in terms of the proof of concept stage, it's great to be able to do both. And that's why I kind of picked coding. Um, in saying that the visual programming gives you a lay of the land in t- terms of database architecture, um, how the logic works for a developer. So you can manage a developer. Um, it, it teaches you so much at very high level rather than the nitty gritty stuff. Um, so I, I think learning to code will be something that I'll dive into further, but that'll be more out of a hobby. It's not a necessity anymore. Mm. Um, I now have people that can code for me, which is great um, at last. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I've gone through multiple iterations of teams as well. So um, it is a learning journey, big time. It's clear to see you're passionate about what you do and the industry you're in. What continues to drive you? Another brilliant question. Um, a big thing that's kind of driving me is I want to be able to go into other areas that are really interesting, like mm-hmm. um, fake meat is an incredible industry. I think that's where the world's going. Um, e-learning is a big area I'd like to be involved in. Um, there's another area in terms of music where can we do a more fair, transparent system where a, a song is essentially an API that you call from and uh, the artist can see how many API calls there are, in other words, streams or downloads, and they have a monetary value on that. So that would be way down the line for tune release um, if we stay on this. But like, I always want to be innovating. And I know people look up to Elon Musk in, in an idolized fashion. I look up to him as a normal guy in terms of no one is a hero or a Superman. He's a normal mm. Joe Soap, um, but he has the right ethos in terms of we should be bettering ourselves and making mm-hmm. impacts and moving society forward. Um, so he's pushing the boat out. I'd like to be able to do that. And I think if you have a, a successful venture or two behind you, you're able to be the Bobby Healy and raise the 20 million you need to, to go ham and build something incredible. Um, where you can't do that if you're just a, a young 20 year old that hasn't sold a startup before. So um, is that is that your goal to be the Bobby Healy and then uh, semi retire with a nice big radio station and enjoy life? In the violin, I'd love to be able to just do what I love and experiment and see uh, what can we build. You know, yeah. Um, like life is a journey after all, so um, I'd like to leave a mark because I, I think going back to kind of my sister when she passed away, you kind of have to live on and for a reason. Um, yeah. That there's no, I think it's pointless just to live day to day and then that's it. You know, you're forgotten about. You think you know, that her, her, her memory is a big driving force for you to make sure you do leave a mark? Yeah, especially early stage. Like I was like, oh, I need to live on for two people now. That, that was something I said mm. to myself when I was 12. Um, wow. And that's kind of stuck with me. So, um, yeah, I, I do think we need to make the most of what we have. Um, not that you need to be a productive, crazy person who day in, day out is like, oh, how do I maximize my productivity? We're human mm. at the end of the day and you still need to have your nap in the middle of the day. But uh, yeah, no, you, you definitely should aim big. Um, 
things take time and they compound over time. But yeah. You are also involved, in, well, you have a second active role and it is with Scale Ireland. There's amazing people like Brian Caulfield, uh, Martina Fitzgerald. Uh, your role is the marketing community lead. What got you involved in Scale Ireland and what do they do for those who might not be familiar with them? Yeah, so Scale Ireland is a representative body. Um, the, the mission we're kind of rallying behind is to make Ireland that leading location for innovation entrepreneurship. Like, well, why can't we compete with the Silicon Valley or, or the Londons? of the world um, we have the talent here um, the next thing we need is just the funding um, and then I think in terms of innovation you can see the startups that are coming out of Ireland and for the most part they're all bootstrapped so imagine if they were venture backed beforehand what size they could be um, now in saying that the venture back model has its, its crash and burn moments but um, it's amazing to see how quick companies can grow uh, when they get I suppose the the cash arrow they need. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's a, that's a that's a nice word. Yeah. Fertilizer they need. I like that. I haven't heard that before. Um, but essentially, I I love um, startups, um, as you can probably tell. So I mm. wanted to be in the startup space. We're bootstrap companies, so by no means could I afford a wage at the time um, from what we were generating, and that was because it was it was mid COVID at the time, and we were doing the bookings. Um, in terms of network. Um, I'm from Blanche. Uh, I don't know anyone in the startup space. I don't know any tech leaders or investors or anything like that. So it's amazing to actually go out and build a community. So we built a community on Slack there of well over 600 people. Um, wow. And that's been extraordinarily active. Um, what I love about it is the fact that I could literally say to the Bobby or the Peter or the Claire, how are you running your, your HR? Uh, what tools are you using? How are you setting it up? How are you onboarding employees? And they're there on Slack, happy enough to, to give an answer, you know. Um, you're not going to get that anywhere else. Mm. Um, so I think Scale Ireland is, is just kind of the, the center point of what is necessary across the ecosystem. There needs to be people just engaging in peer-to-peer learning. Um, like if you go on any program, anytime they try and sell you the program, they're always going to say the best thing actually about the program is just sitting down with your 20 other peers and that are also working on their businesses and uh, mm -hmm. there's going to be so much overlap in terms of uh, failures wins um and even for music artists i'm always saying can you find someone doing it well 18 months ahead of you and just reverse engineer it and you should be on the right track then um, brilliant brilliant I'll, I'll leave a link to, to scale Ireland as well as all your socials and uh, tune release as well below three final questions for you at the top of this podcast you touched on that uh, I think it was your mother uh, that instilled your love for reading. I'm assuming that you can, well, I know from you to me and involvement in Scarlet Island that you continue to invest in yourself. But are there any books or podcasts that you're listening or reading to at the moment that, that you're enjoying? Lost and Founder is just such a candid read. Um, it's by the founder of Moz, which is a kind of SEO um, startup. Mm. Um, they had the option of the 20 million acquisition they had the option of the venture back funding um it's crazy to see someone making decisions one way and the ramifications of that and then the power of hindsight um so he has a really successful venture still um but he had them outs that he could have taken um and what were the kind of risk versus reward then um it's just such a compelling read. It goes into everything, like absolutely everything. And I think for me, the hardest part of, of building any company is gonna be getting the right people around you 
uh, managing them, managing expectations, uh, ensuring that they're set up for success and that um, there's clear guidelines in terms of how to run uh, a proper startup. Mm. Um, because so much can go wrong and, and people are very capricious and very hard to <laughs> gauge where they might go and what they might do. So um, yeah, I think just from an operation standpoint, Lost and Founder is one of the best books. Your house is burning down. All your loved ones are safe, uh, but you can only save one item. What one item would that be? At the moment, the the MacBook. Um, I'm new to the whole Apple fanboy craze, but uh, <laughs> it's I can do everything on it. So and I can make the money back to um, buy everything again from it. <laughs> so I'm, I'm glad to see you've made the decision to come over to the good side, the Apple yes. side. Um, uh, final question. Thing. Final question for you is, I'd like you to imagine that it is now 2030, like we're talking and it's year 2030. If you were to look back on the last 10 years, uh, you can answer this personally or professionally, but what would you like to be looking back on pretending that we're in the year 2030? Well, big thing that's really important for me is access and equal opportunity. Um, So I'd like to be able to see someone, regardless of their background, be able to jump into these entrepreneurship courses build what they want to build, but also avail of kind of education material they need to succeed. So a big issue I have kind of at the moment is I had to pay seven grand to go to the Institute to get the best notes for the same syllabus as someone else down the road. Mm. Why aren't them notes just their downloadable PDFs online for students all sitting the exact same exams? Um, it wouldn't cost the government that much to buy all the notes off the Institute teachers and the Institute teachers could retire, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, so I, I'd love just to be able to see people be able to do what they want to do um, with as little barriers as possible. I like that. I like that. Luke, I've had a great pleasure chatting to you, getting to know you a little more over the last 35 minutes. And Thank I you wish me. you nothing but the best going Thank forward you. in the future. You too. Beautiful morning, beautiful sun.